Hello guys, welcome to another episode, episode 13 of Hashtag The Life of a Surveyor. 13 could be an unlucky number for some, but for me and my family, it's been quite lucky. I've been born and brought up in number 13. I, well, my mum went into labour on the 13th. Um, I was born on the 14th, but um, yeah, that's another 13. Uh, what else is lucky about 13? Hmm, I don't know. But um, yeah, 13 holds a good resemblance for, for, for me and my family. And we're not one of those, I think 13's unlucky and just stay away from it. And it's inauspicious and stuff like that. We're not superstitious about it. But yeah, episode 13, and I thought I'd do something special for this one. Um, so it's slightly different, which I don't think I've done or I don't think anyone's done really. And it's something that is quite common in property and my industry. So what I've done is I've collated a load of um, funny stories and um, incidents or property blunders that have occurred over my time in this career and over other people's time in this career. Not all of it is surveying related. Some of it is general property related. Some of it's funny. Some of it's sort of real cock-ups um, that have happened. Some are interesting, some aren't, but I've collated a few that I've um, gathered from talking to colleagues and other property professionals. But I think what I would like to do is make this a regular thing. So this will be the first one of um, Property Blunders 101, I want to call it. And I want to sort of try and get you guys involved. So if you've got any funny stories, quirky stories about the property profession, things that have happened to you in your role, or anything you've experienced when you've been dealing with surveyors or with property in general, drop me a note. You can actually be on the podcast if you want and actually record your own segment and I will put it on the podcast. So I will put on a link as to how you can do this on my Instagram. So make sure you follow me on my Instagram. It's the same tag, the life of a surveyor, hashtag the life of a surveyor. So you should be able to find me there and I'll show you how you can be on the podcast and how you can record and send me your stories. If you don't feel confident recording it, by all means, send it to me in a message and I will read it out on your behalf. So, yeah, without any further ado, I'm not going to use that because uh, Stephen Bartlett might see me. So uh, let's get right into it. <laughs> so the first one I've been sent is quite an interesting one. And it's something that I've not come across before. And it's to do with the drafting of a lease. Now I deal with leases day in, day out. I read at least one, if not 10 leases a day. And generally they're pretty similar, but they're just sort of arranged in a different format. The clauses are sort of all over the place. So you can't really follow the same same precedent as, as you do with sort of all the other leases. But generally the clauses are similar with a one or two tweaks and you know, you've got to have certain standard clauses in there. And one of the clauses which is important and if you have a rent review, you need a rent review clause. So what is a rent review clause? A rent review clause tells you how a rent review should be instigated, how it should be dealt with, how you should document it, how you should value the property, what are the assumptions, what is included, what is disregarded, gives you all that sort of detail. Now, this rent review clause was quite interesting because the clause stated, and this was agreed, by the way, in the head to terms, the clause stated that there was to be an upwards or downwards rent review, right? Now, generally, as a industry norm, upwards only rent reviews or 
market rent reviews are traditionally accepted and that's what you see in most leases. That's the common approach adopted. Now, there's no reason why you wouldn't agree to a upwards or downwards as well, because if you're a tenant, you can get a lower rent, which is great. Yeah. So that's the downward side. An upwards rent review is probably beneficial for the landlord. So the landlord will push to have an upwards only. And upwards and downwards, that's pretty good negotiating if you can agree that, because it kind of benefits both parties. However, with this clause, it was an upwards and downwards rent review. However, only the landlord can instigate it. And with this property in particular, the rent review came up for review. The rent came up for review. And the market rent at the time was lower than the passing rent, which meant it was a downwards rent review. And it could only be instigated by the landlord. And the landlord instigated it. Now, if you're a landlord, why on hell? Would you want to instigate a rent review where you know the rent is going to go down? You're going to reduce your income from this tenant. It's bonkers. Why would you do that? Now, the tenant is ecstatic because their rent's going down. They're making savings. So why wouldn't they just hurry up and get that documented and agree it ASAP? But whoever agreed this clause, kudos to them um, from the tenant side. <laughs> But whoever's advising the landlord on this rent review, they need a refresher course on rent reviews because there's no way in hell they should have been advised to instigate this review. If you're a landlord you should, and you have a downwards rent review and the market rent is lower than the passing rent, do not instigate it under any circumstances. Just sit still. You don't have to instigate a rent review, by the way. That, it does, you don't have to do it. So they could have foregone this review, carried on at passing rent and made a profit rent because the market rent was lower than the passing. So the property was over rented. So that was a massive blunder on the landlord's part or the landlord's agent's part, whoever was advising the landlord there. So not quite sure what happened there, but um, it just goes to show you need to be advised correctly when you're dealing with these sorts of clauses. So seek advice from a surveyor or a solicitor because you could be losing out big time on this. Now, keeping with the theme of landlord and tenants, as part of a lease, if you want to make any alterations to a property that you are occupying, so if you're a tenant and you want to alter the property and make structural changes, usually this will require you to seek landlord's consent. And you would have to provide the landlord with a landlord's pack, which consists of detailed plans of what works you are intending to carry out, how you intend to carry those out, so a risk assessment, a method statement, you need to form of any materials, specialist materials that you'll be using when you plan on doing this. So your program of works, who will be doing the work. So your contractor's details, your insurer's details, your contractor's insurer's details to ensure that they have enough public liability insurance and any other relevant information that the landlord may need to make a decision on whether to grant you consent to carry out these works or not. Now, as a state manager, my role is to go out and seek these consents or if I'm acting for the landlord, it's to approve these consents. Now, when I was working for a retailer, they had proposed to carry out some much needed works to their distribution centre. So this was a warehouse in Stoke and they needed to do some works to their distribution centre to just bring it up to speed and for what they require. Um, and it included making a few loading bays a bit more modern, having dock levelers and infilling a few of them to create extra space within the warehouse. 
adding a new traffic light system to the bays where the lorries back up into. So there was a whole system going in there, so upgrading all the tech and then creating new pathways and roadways to allow the forklifts to move to and from different areas. So it's quite a bit of work that needed doing. And like I said, you need to provide the landlord with a landlord's pack to describe to them what works you're going to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. So this was all prepared. I had it ready to go and I sent it off to the landlord. So back then when this was pre-COVID and, you know, we did everything paper-based, made copies of it, the whole pack, it was huge sort of A4 folder, made a copy, made copies of it in triplicate so that they have enough copies, one to send to the solicitor, one to send to the landlord, one to send to the managing agent. So made it in triplicate. So everyone has the same copy, hard copy and soft copy, emailed out to everyone and posted out to everyone as well so that they can't say we didn't receive the information. So all of that went out and it was decided that I would meet the landlord on site to discuss the works in a bit more detail and just show them exactly what we proposed to do. So I agreed. We dealt with this landlord before. It's a big logistics warehouse landlord, well known. They have a lot of warehouse units across the UK and the asset manager acting for the landlord on the other side was quite an amicable person. And, you know, I've dealt with him quite a bit. So we got on quite well. So I could be quite frank with him and said, let's meet on site. I'll talk you through it. And then we can take it from there and instruct solicitors, et cetera, et cetera. So we arrange a meeting. Everyone agrees, we get to site and everyone's there, get into a meeting room, discuss what we want to do. And then we go off to walk the site to show him exactly what we propose to do. On site, it's myself, the landlord, the landlord's agent, the project manager who was going to manage all these works and oversee and supervise what was going on. And then we had the contractor as well. And we were going to meet the distribution center manager on site as well, who would walk us through the site and tell us what's what. So there's quite a few of us, six of us on site, ready to walk this site. So we start walking and we slowly, we start looking at all these different bits and bobs that we want to do. And we look at A49, 48, they're all infilled already. Something sounds a bit wrong here. And um, cause those were the ones that were meant to be infilled to create a bit more space, right? We talk about, okay, fine, carry on going, go outside. We see all these little traffic lights on all these um, loading bays. And that got me thinking, has someone actually come out and done these works already without landlord's consent? And I'm here like an idiot walking around the site with the landlord saying, we want to do this. And just as I'm thinking that the landlord comes up to me and says, are these the works that you're proposing? Has someone actually carried them out already? <laughs> <laughs> and none of us knew that these works had been carried out. No one had told us that these works had been carried out or they've already been done. They were just being proposed and planned. And the phasing plans are about two, three months away. We'd not agreed to it, not documented anything, we'd not planned anything. Nothing was done from a sort of head office perspective. But on the ground, someone has given them the go ahead and they've actually gone ahead and done all these works without landlord's consent. And I'm there walking around with the landlord saying, can we do this? Can we? Oh, it seems like we've done the works. Can we get a retrospective license now, please? <laughs> but um, it, it's just one of those moments where you just think, what the hell is going on? And how do I play this out now? Because you can't come back from looking like a Muppet. I mean, I'm there 
proper going and saying, look, it's going to benefit the warehouse, it's going to benefit the building. You know, when we leave, you'll we'll leave all this stuff in and, you know, you'll add value to your building when we hand it back, et cetera. So really selling it to you so it gives us consent. We start walking on site, it's all bloody there. Honestly, everyone just looks at each other. Right? And then the, um, the, the, the distribution center manager finally says, oh, yeah, these works were done about two weeks ago. Oh, great. Thanks for telling us. <laughs> but um, yeah, you can't make it up. You can't make it up. But yeah, one of the most uncomfortable moments I've had in my career. It, it's, it's, it's definitely up there. So uh, yeah, if you're planning on getting landlord's consent and you're meeting the landlord on site to show him what you're doing, make sure the works haven't been carried out. Um, so do, do your background checks. Make sure you visit site before you meet the landlord there if you can. And, and, and don't don't be in my position because it was not a good place to be. One of the things that I deal with as part of managing properties and managing void properties, more importantly, is ensuring that there are active PPM programs in place to manage the statutory requirements. So looking at your electric certification, your gas, your or asbestos, your emergency lighting, fire alarms, sprinkler systems, etc., etc., lifts and stuff like that. One of the big ones is asbestos. Now, I'm by no means an expert on asbestos, but I deal with it quite a bit. And one of the most memorable interactions, shall we say, with asbestos I've had was when I was inspecting a property in Colville. And this property was quite unique in that it was a old Odeon cinema and um, one of the original Odeon cinemas and the upper floors where the cinema bit is was still left as a cinema I mean it'd been decommissioned the screens were all down and you know it's all battered and tattered and everything but this building especially the upper floors had a hell of a lot of asbestos in there and obviously it was managed you know it was all clearly marked and asbestos is only dangerous and harmful to you if the fibers are disturbed and enter the airspace. Now a lot of the asbestos on this site was within the walls. Um, it's the insulation, it's the flooring, it's the ceiling, stuff like that. It wasn't sort of just you know particles of asbestos flying around so it wasn't a massive health and safety risk but obviously you have to be careful when asbestos is around so you can't be sort of poking holes in the walls and stuff like that. This site had a lot of asbestos in there and I could feel it as I'm walking around the site. I could feel it sort of, I don't know, I just felt really uneasy. I could feel my breathing getting a bit strenuous and finding it difficult to breathe. So I sort of went up, had a quick look around and then immediately had to go outside for some fresh air because I don't know whether it was because the building was just shut and empty and stuffy for all this time and no one had been there. It's just that sort of atmosphere. But for me, it was quite overwhelming because I hadn't, I hadn't experienced this before I've not really encountered asbestos like this before but yeah it's something that you really have to be careful of so yeah I mean sort of went in did a, did a quick inspection came back out and then did that sort of two three times to make sure that you know I was getting enough air and you know I wasn't gonna pass out or get asbestos into my body and get asbestos asbestositis I can never say that word and ultimately die but I, I seem to be fine it's been a good five years my breathing's fine I'm fine you know, if I do die of asbestositis in a couple of years, hopefully I'll be able to make a claim on the company. But 
we'll see about that. But it was one of those things. Now, the interesting thing about this property was we had security providers coming in to do weekly void property, vacant property inspections. Now, this includes going inside, outside, looking at the perimeter, making sure the doors are shut, making sure the taps and lights and everything is shut. And it's generally a safe property. And I, I met the security guy on site because I didn't hold the keys to his property. I needed the keys off the security company who held them on our behalf. And um, so I needed him to let me in. So the security guy turns up and so he showed me around the lower ground floor and the basement and everything and everything looked fine. I did my inspection, took photos, had a look around, see what's there and did, did what I need to do on my inspection. It's just a general inspection, not anything sort of important, didn't need to value it or anything. So. It was just a general inspection to see what condition the property's in. So we looked around downstairs and um, I said to him, right, should we go upstairs? He goes, oh, we don't go there. So why not? He said, oh, I've never gone there. So how long have you been inspecting this place for? He said, about 12 weeks. I said, so you've never been upstairs? Yeah. Why? Um, it's dark up there, there's no lights and I'm scared. So you're a flipping security guard. Come on, get yourself up there. So I took the keys off his hands and literally unlocked the up, upper floors and walked up these danky stairs and just, it was dark, dingy, cobwebs everywhere. And a lot, do you know what? A lot of my job involves walking into cobwebs. I come back from site and I'm just covered in cobwebs half the time. It's disgusting. It's vile and I hate it. That's a bit of my job I do not like. Um, when I'm inspecting void properties, I've been sat there and there's a hell of a lot of cobwebs and it's just disgusting. It's uh, part and parcel of the job. So go upstairs, do the inspection, if you know, start flicking the lights on and there's power, there's lights. Like, what are you doing? It just goes to show security guards, some of them, jeez, they need to man up a little bit, you know. It's, uh, it's a little on me going and going upstairs to these places into the unknown. And half the time you're, you're alone working. So you go into some of these places and you're on your own. There's no one there to back you up. So you, you don't know what you're walking into, especially if it's properties like this. You're on your own. So. You don't know what you're going to encounter or what you're going to get yourself into. I mean, I remember one time there was a property that I went to inspect in Hampshire and I was inspecting the basement and I was just about to start. I wasn't alone here. My manager was with me. So this wasn't a lone working situation, thank God. Um, but I was going into the basement and I started going down the steps and my manager pulls me back. I said, whoa, what's, what's up? What's going on? He goes, I just saved your life. What are you on about? I'm just going to check the basement. He goes, look at that. What can you see? So nothing It's clear. Yeah, it's clear because there's water in there and the electric meters are right there. Water, electric. If I had stepped into that basement, there's a few more steps to go. I would have died. I would have electrocuted myself and I probably would have died. Um, so Tony, if you are listening, genuinely, you have saved my life and I'm ever thankful for you for doing so. But yeah, it, it, these sorts of risks are part and parcel of the job. And, you know, yeah, you should be doing risk assessments when you go out and stuff like that. But yeah, you're never going to know that there's a flooded basement and the, the electric mains are exposed and the wires are in the water. You know, that's not something you would know from a desktop risk assessment. That's something you should do while you're on site and you should always be looking out anyway. I mean, I should just caveat this by saying this is probably my second or third week in the job and I had never sort of done inspections like that before. So that's my caveat. And I've learned from it. I sort of, you know, take a stick or something with me in front and just make sure there's no water or anything. 
in front of you and I'm going into basements now because obviously basements are most prone to flooding and usually that's where the meters and stuff are as well so tip of the week make sure you keep something that stops you from getting electrocuted and watch out for clear standing water oh and also if you're a security guard make sure you check everything now carrying on with the theme of inspections and security, I manage the inspection regime. Security guards go and inspect closed stores. This includes doing a weekly inspection inside out, making sure that everything's locked, lights off, etc., etc. Like I said previously. Now a lot of these stores that are closed, they might not always be empty. There might still be racking in their fixtures and fittings, etc., etc. But 99% of the time, stock is also removed by the time we instruct security companies to go in and do their weekly inspections. There's only the odd ones where the stock is still there, and that's because the sort of destock teams haven't got round to doing so, and it's sort of imminent in the next week or so for it to be done. Now, the security company had been inspecting this site in Uxbridge, London, and they've been going in for about four or five weeks now. And I'd be getting reports every week saying property still has stock in it. Property is secure, but it has stock in it. Property is secure, but it has stock in it. I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? Because this store is meant to be destocked sort of months ago. It's empty, it's void. And I know that because I've inspected it myself. Now, it turns out that the security company were inspecting completely the wrong site. It's the same store in two locations, right? There's one on a retail park and one in a shopping centre. It's the same company, same store, but on two locations in Uxbridge. And the one they were supposed to be inspecting is the one in the shopping centre. The one they were inspecting was the one in the retail park, which was a fully trading store. So that kind of explained why there was still stock in it, because it's a fully trading store. They're still operating as a trading store. It's the one that they're meant to be inspecting. It's the shopping centre, which is all empty, stripped out and void. And obviously I launched an investigation into saying, how has this happened? This is a major, major breach. How the hell has this happened? And it turns out that the store manager for that trading store on the retail park actually gave the security company the keys saying, oh yeah, well, you're an approved contractor for the, for, each, for, the, for the company. Here's the keys. You guys need to do inspections. Oh, okay. I'm not going to question it. Here's the keys. You crack on. And the security company are going in out of hours. So the store is going to be closed early morning or in the middle of the night to do the inspections and they're like there's stock in here no shit sherlock you're inspecting the wrong flipping store how i just don't know how this yeah i i, I just don't know i have no words like it's beyond stupid but um needless to say an investigation was carried out and it was corrected very quickly and the trading store had all their locks changed and everything and the keys were returned and so it wasn't too much of an issue and they started inspecting the correct site and then the report actually did say, yeah, it's void, everything's safe, it's empty. But boy, oh boy. In my role, I work with the FM provider, so facilities management company, quite a lot, who do all the maintenance and repairs, etc., etc., for the estate. Now, generally, they're, they're good. They go out, get everything sorted, repair what's needed to be done, and they do sort of PPM and everything like that. And it's all sort of pretty self sufficient, but you do have to oversee the processes at some point. Now, the FM provider subcontracts the jobs needing doing to various different subcontractors. And the concern here was the landscaping. So they were going out, mowing the lawn, clearing and clearing the rubbish and tending to any sort of overhanging trees or vegetation needing cutting back, etc. etc. Now, 
my client owns, or should I say, used to own about 18 acres of land, which was then sold off and turned into a golf course. And this had happened all four, maybe five years ago that they'd done this transaction and you know, it was off the books. No one needed to do anything. FM should have stopped from the date of sale. Right. However, someone failed to notify the FM company or there was some miscommunication somewhere. Don't know. I wasn't there at the time, so don't know why it happened, but it happened. So for five years, they were going out and mowing the lawn on 18 acres of land every month. Now, you know, five years, 18 acres, that's a lot of money. You're talking about tens of thousands of pounds over that course of time. And, you know, doing all the other bits and bobs, sort of clearing vegetation and landscape, uh, litter picking, etc., etc. That's a lot of money. And my client's paying for this. But no one's thought to pick up on it, saying, why are we paying so much on this site when this site is not even ours anymore? However, going through some of these reports, it kind of came to light, saying, right, what the hell is going on? But and it turns out that no one had informed them or they'd failed to receive the notification to say that we'd sold this site. So tens of thousands of pounds were going into this unnecessarily. So that's a hell of a lot of money that my client has lost from a simple miscommunication. So another tip is make sure you notify all necessary parties of a transaction happening, whether that's a sale of a site or a letting of a site. If you've taken on new sites, you start to ensure that you've got your PPM going on because you're liable from day one when you take on that property. If you're disposing of a site, you know, make sure that people aren't going in and carrying out any works. And you know, just linked to that, it's a bit of a bit of a tangent. My client surrendered a property early and notified everyone. But again, could be miscommunication. The FM company didn't receive this notification and they were going into this property, which was in a shopping centre, and carrying out fire alarm testing every week. And this property had been handed back to the landlord. All keys were handed back to the landlord, but the, the FM company must have held a set of keys. Um, <laughs> so these guys are still going in to this property that's been handed back. And yeah, technically they're trespassing. So if anyone was to put a claim in or anything, the FM company would be liable for trespassing and the security guard would probably get prosecuted for doing so. Needless to say, immediately a stop was put on it, keys destroyed or handed back to you know the landlord or landlord's agent that needed them. But again, you know, it's just important to sort of make sure you are informing all parties that something has transacted and you no longer have to go into that property. And also it's important if you're a landlord, it's also important to change the locks. Because, you know, who knows how many keys are out there? I mean, if you're a retail tenant, you could have 10 keys potentially for one site because you've got 10 different managers. They all have a set of keys. Yeah, they might have got set cut and pass it on to an assistant manager, deputy manager, et cetera, et cetera. Colleagues might have keys for some whatever reason, you know, but there could be a lot of keys out there that you don't know of. If you don't change the locks on your property ASAP, anyone can gain access. Yes, it's trespassing, but, you know, you need to make sure that site is secure and only those who need access have access to it. So make sure you change the locks if you're a landlord once you get a property back from a tenant. And remember, you can also try and um, put that cost against dilapidations if the tenants haven't already changed the locks, which they rarely do. So, you know, it's not going to be a cost to you. You can always try recharge it back to the tenant handing the property back to you. Now, just following on from site inspections, as an estates manager, I have to go out and visit sites and a lot of the times because I manage the properties nationwide it means going across to Northern Ireland sometimes going up to Scotland and sometimes it's not always possible to drive to these places so you jump on a flight jump on a train and then you hire a car up there wherever you are 
and you sort of do a sort of fly drive almost. And the higher cars that the companies give you aren't always the best because they're usually the cheapest little sort of hot hatches sometimes, or sometimes even the smallest car they can give you. And on a couple of occasions, this has happened. I've had Fiat 500s or a Peugeot 106, I think it was. And they're really tiny, one litre engines and you know no power to them whatsoever. Now, if you're traveling to Scotland, you're going up these hills. You know, if you're going all the way, all the way to Edinburgh, um, not Edinburgh, sorry, Aberdeen from Edinburgh, the roads there are pretty steep and you need quite a powerful car to get through some of these roads because you, know, you need the power, and especially if you're trying to overtake. Now, if you're trying to do this on a Fiat 500, in a Fiat 500, good gosh, you've got no hope. Now, I'm not talking about those baths that are supercharged and all that stuff. This is just a normal one litre, 1.2 litre max Fiat 500. Yeah. And no offence to anyone who's got a Fiat 500. They are good cars, right? I do like them. But if you're doing a site visit, you're up against the clock because you're trying to do X amount of site visits in a day. So you've programmed it all in. You've got a little bit of flex, but I mean, come on, you can't be chugging along sort of 999 cc power trying to get past this tractor that's slowing you down anyway on a hill. It's just not going to happen. And there's two passengers in the car, me and my, me and my manager. It, it's not going to happen. I mean, I've got my foot fully down, yeah, pedal to the metal, trying to rev this thing to go. No movement whatsoever. We're both sort of lunging and trying to sort of use our body weight to, to push the car forward. Nothing. Like, if you are doing site visits in Scotland, Northern Ireland, or anywhere that's you know, mountainy and hilly and you need a bit of power. So please, please, please make sure that you do upgrade your car if you do get a higher car and, and, and make sure you've got a powerful enough car to get you around to the sites in a timely manner. It gives you that little bit of power to overtake and make sure you can sort of get around everywhere in time. So you stick to your timetable and that you don't get stuck anywhere as well. So yeah, Fiat 500 in Scotland, nah. Likewise in Northern Ireland, I mean, my manager at the time, Andrew Wilkinson, big shout out to Andrew. Andrew Wilkinson and I were in uh, Northern Ireland for a day. So, you know, time wise, we are pretty tight because we've got to make that flight back home. And it was the last flight. So, I mean, there's always the option to get a hotel and stay there. But I mean, ideally, you want to go back home and sleep in your own bed. Um, and you've spent all this time planning the trip to make sure that you do make it everywhere in time. But again, we had a Peugeot 106 to get all the way around from Belfast, all the way around Northern Ireland and back to Belfast in a couple of hours whilst visiting, I think it's about six sites. So a jam-packed day, but again, trying to overtake and get to places on time. This car just had no power. It is shocking. Never again. I've learned my lesson. If I do end up hiring a car, I do request that it's a medium sized car rather than a small hot hatch. And I justify it in, in the expenses policy to say, look, the small car will not get us to these places in time. I've experienced it before. It's justified. You need to give me that bigger car. And usually it gets approved. So it's not much of a problem. But yeah, one, if you are a surveyor or, you know, you do travel for your role, you're field based, one to sort of bear in mind, make sure you choose a decent car that has enough power. So I think I'm going to leave it there for this episode. There's quite a lot in there, quite a lot going on. And there are a lot, a lot of them are personal experiences with other people as well. But um, it just goes to show that it's not all just straightforward and you know, things go smoothly. There is a bit of fun in games and things do go wrong. You do come across random stuff and you just think, what the fuck? 
but you know what it's what makes the job what it is it makes it fun if these things didn't happen you'd you, you get bored pretty quickly so yeah no it's it's been a good good experience doing what i do so far i love it i wouldn't change it for the world but yeah if you have any experiences that you do want to share any blunders any experiences anything crazy wacky different please do get in touch drop me a message through anchor if you want or through my instagram which is where i'm mostly active so drop me a message or leave a voice note to say you want this going into the podcast i will put it on i promise you we'll try and do one sort of every couple of months a property blunders episode every couple of months once i've collated a few of these stories so yeah we'll see what comes through next time but um, in the meantime please do like share subscribe the usual make sure you tell people that this podcast is out there if you're working in property let people know because from the feedback i've got people are enjoying this so i'm going to carry on doing these there's new content all, every time you know i'm not really trying to repeat the same stuff because that does get boring but um yeah if there's anything you want to hear about as well in property let me know if you're an APC candidate, get in touch. I do mentoring, I do counseling. Uh, I get you through the process. So if you need any advice, any tips, let me know. Again, use those contact methods, Instagram, Anchor, get in touch. And um, yeah, we'll catch up the next one. Cheers.